Good morning, everyone. Jim Laird here. Uh, Dr. Stillman will be joining me shortly. Um, please like, subscribe, help us to push this information out. We appreciate you tuning in and watching. We appreciate your comments. Um, always happy to, uh, to answer your questions. We have a couple things here uh, coming up. Dr. Stillman has an HTMA um, course that he's going to be telling you about at the end of the month in a webinar. You can go down to his link tree, click on HTMA secrets, enter your information in there. And of course, you can go to stillmanmd.com uh, to learn about our medical services that we offer. And then you can go to, to stillmanwellness.com to learn about our coaching services uh, that we offer as well. Um, it's a beautiful muggy day here in, in Florida. I'm trying a different camera position and a different camera so I don't look so weird. I think I'm facing a different direction so the sun's not right on me to, so it doesn't cause so many issues for the camera. Let me know if you can hear me okay. This has a new microphone, so uh, that would be very helpful if you uh, if you let me know that. So that being said, crazy, crazy topic today. I think one of the most neglected uh, vitamins, but it's actually not a vitamin, it's a hormone. Uh, most people don't realize that. Vitamin D um, definitely recently has gotten a lot more attention, but does not get the attention that it deserves. Um, it is super important, super critical. And obviously, uh, human beings make their vitamin D which, uh, thank you, James. I appreciate the feedback and thank you for tuning in every day. We love having you on here. Thank you so much. Um, obviously human beings are designed to get their vitamin D from the sun. Um, there are other ways to get vitamin D as well. Like if you look at traditional cultures that, you know, are very North, like the Inuit, they get most of their vitamin D from the food they eat from seafood. They also get huge benefits from cold exposure. So nature, thank you, David. Nature always provides what's needed uh, in the environment for you to survive. But obviously the modern human has kind of changed things around a little bit. And now that we, we live a much more indoor life, um, most people just do not get the vitamin D they need from, from the sun. So Good morning, Dr. how are you? I've, I've changed my camera position. I'm actually facing towards the back fence. And I think that's probably going to be a little better than having the sun right in front of me. So it's much better. Yeah. It's much better lighting for you. Yeah. Thanks. You know, I'm, you know, I have to, you know, keep up my image of my, you know, model esque type, um, face, you know? Yeah. You were just telling me that, uh, you thought you needed some headshots that didn't say something or scream something like I am a barbarian ready to go kill all of the invading, you know, rival tribes. Yeah. Yes, I am a model in a barbarian culture. That, that would be a, <laughs> that we know it's but funny. I was thinking about that with the way things are going. I think that I think that's going to work better and better for you. I think so too. But uh, hopefully, I'll I'll draw more uh, feminine attention than the uh, eight to ten messages on Instagram I get a week uh, complimenting me uh, on my masculinity and asking me about my social preferences. That's a hopefully. great euphemism for that, Jim. Yeah, which which I kindly say thank you for the compliment, but that's not my social preference. So hopefully social that that's a new one, Jim. hopefully that preference will start inverting here. It would be much better to get um, some uh, natural attention um, as opposed to 
an alternative type of tension. So I'm pretty sure some people don't know what you're talking about, but that's okay. That's we'll totally leave, fine. We'll we leave can, it at that. Right. All right. Let's talk about vitamin D. Yes, sir. I just, just basically told people, people I don't get enough of it. Well, I told them that. I told them, you know, we're designed to get it from the sun. Um, I told them that it's probably the most undervalued and that it's actually a hormone. And it's not a vitamin. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And it's the most undervalued thing. And obviously things have come into the forefront. You know, during uh, when I would get in arguments with people over the beer bug online while it was happening and stuff, and they would talk about, you know, wearing face diapers and, and things like that and testing. I was like, we should really test everyone's vitamin D level. Because if your vitamin D level is below a certain level, you know, th that's a bigger risk to me than, than you, you know, whatever, you know, walking around with face diaper on. I think that's going to be a better indicator of whether you're healthy and whether you're going to spread it or not. Um, uh, yeah. Just my opinion. <clears throat> right. Go for it, Doc. Take off running. All right. So vitamin D secrets, what you really need to know. Here's the deal. Vitamin D is a vitamin. You make it in your skin in response to UVB light. You ingest it in your food, specifically from cold water fish and from full fat dairy. Unless you eat like an Eskimo, an Inuit, or maybe an Amish farmer, you are not going to get enough vitamin D from your food to support a normal, healthy level of vitamin D. Jim was just telling me today that some people have um, dropped comments on some of the content we've done, um, talking about a couple people who, who say that you don't need more vitamin D than something like a level of like 21. And I want to unpack why people say you need this much or you need that much. And here's why. So what you're going to see cl clinically is not the same as what you're going to see in the epidemiological data. In the epidemiological data, they have not been able to demonstrate a mortality decrease or in other words, a mortality benefit and a longevity benefit with vitamin D supplementation to reach levels over and people are going to debate this, so I'm not even going to you know, get too specific on this, uh, but high 20s, low 30s. If you look, for example, at you know, all-cause mortality studies where they look at serum vitamin D level, there doesn't seem to be a benefit over that, okay? Number one, those studies are old. We live in a changing environment. Never assume that what worked in the last generation is going to work today, right? You've all seen this in your families, your friends, people who were who come from young or I shouldn't say young people who come from youthful healthy families with a lot of vitality grandparents living into their 80s and 90s with no medical care are being struck down in the prime of life okay so bear that in mind we have a very dynamic changing environment and so you, you have to be careful extrapolating the results people got 40 50 60 100 years ago to today now the mortality benefits really come from having a vitamin D level that's over what some of us would describe as terrible teens and low twenties, but that's the mortality benefit that you can prove in the epidemiological literature. Now there's another element here that is very important, which has to do with what diseases you have and how you have them. So for example, we know that vitamin D at high doses, like 10,000 IU a day, has reduced risk in many studies in patients with cancer. Um, so M ball asks who's recording vitamin D for epidemiology. There's actually a lot of people who've done this in the past. They usually do um, things like the NHANES use data sets like the NHANES data set, which is a whole other story, but we do actually have a lot of data on this, even though doctors rarely check it. 
So uh, what I was saying was, um, what was I saying, Jim? I was talking about how epidemiologically versus. Um, yes. Right. So in cancer, you'll see that some people uh, have documented an improvement in, or reduction in mortality with high doses like 10,000 IU a day. Right. So just because Betty Sue over here does not think that she needs to take vitamin D, if you have metastatic breast cancer over here, you are not Betty Sue. I don't think I know anyone who knows anything about uh, oncology who's even remotely integratively minded, who doesn't think high dose vitamin D is wise for these patients. And I don't mean anyone. Um, you look at guys like Dr. Jim Roach, uh, a lot of the people who are interested in naturopathic oncology and integrative oncology, the names of some of those guys escape me, but I've been to some of their conferences. I, I, you know, I'm sure we disagree on lots of things, but one thing I don't think anyone in those communities really disagrees on is the role of high dose vitamin D for improving uh, survival uh, from cancer. We may, uh, we may see that higher and higher doses of vitamin D reduce your risk of cancer. I haven't seen that documented in the literature. And what I mean by that, to be very clear, is that giving people supplemental vitamin D reduces their risk of cancer. I haven't seen that. What I will tell you is that what a lot of people in the vitamin D literature don't talk enough about is the difference between getting your vitamin D from the sun and getting your vitamin D from a pill or food. And these are actually three different things. So if you're gonna get your vitamin D from food, I want you to think about everything else that's coming with it. If you're consuming full fat dairy, you're getting short chain fatty acids, which have an effect on your gut and your microbiome. If you're consuming dairy, you're getting lots and lots of calcium, you're getting carbohydrates, you're getting a fair protein load, you're getting a lot of sulfur-based amino acids. All of these have effects on your health. So saying I took my calcium and vitamin D supplement is not the same as saying I had my full fat, organic, raw, you know, non-GMO, cruelty-free, organic, you know, full fat dairy. So that's for starters. Fish is a whole different story, right? It is very different to get your vitamin D from say, tuna and halibut and swordfish, which have very little vitamin D for the record, relatively speaking anyway, and getting your vitamin D from anchovies and sardines because the anchovies and the sardines are really low on the food chain and they have very, very little mercury. They have a ton of omega-3s. So remember, you're getting the omega-3s with the fish, you're getting selenium, you're getting calcium, you're getting things like vitamin A, you're getting tons and tons and tons of nutrients from these fish. Shellfish is a whole other kettle of fish, pun intended, and they are, you know, going to be packed with trace elements like manganese and chromium and iodine and molybdenum and copper and zinc. So understand that when we're looking at all of this, you know, we may see two people with the same vitamin D level in a big study, and they're getting in a completely different way. They have a completely different lifestyle, and it has totally different implications and effects on them. With the sun, remember that you're not getting UVB light from the sun in isolation. You're getting red and infrared light. You're getting visible light. You're getting blue light, green light. You're getting ultraviolet type A and type B. All of these have lots of effects in your body and you can't separate all of them. So what's the bottom line here? And this gets me into the clinical data. I just sort of gave you the 50,000 foot view of what people talk about in the epidemiological and academic worlds of should we supplement people for vitamin D. In the clinical world, what you're going to see is that very, very few people with a vitamin D level over 50 ever develop an acute cold or flu. You're going to see that when they do, they bounce back very rapidly. You're going to see anecdotally 
people who use high doses of vitamin D reporting that it helps them get their patients allergies, autoimmune conditions, and other defects of immune function and diseases thereof under control faster. Can I give you some kind of very clear documentation of that in a nice, neat scientific study? No, because the people in academia are just not, I mean, I, I, they're very, God help them. They're very confused people and they don't ask good questions in my opinion. So the bottom line there is what I do for my own vitamin D level and what I recommend to my patients for their vitamin D level is that I want them to be up in the higher range of normal. The other reason I, I say this is that you have to bear in mind that vitamin D has got a big variation around the year. If you follow me at all, you know that I recommend what I call prudent sun exposure, which means getting enough vitamin D uh, or enough UV light from the sun to make enough vitamin D, as well as get the benefits of UVA and visible light and red and infrared light, which usually means you know an hour, two hours for the average patient as possible throughout the course of the day. Much of that's in the morning and the evening when there's very little if no UV light around, which is important to note. So um, that's what I call prudent sun exposure. What you'll see in most people is that they're able to do that with something like 30 minutes to an hour of sun exposure with high UV index. Like here in Florida, the UV index is like 14. I was looking at it in Canada yesterday for somebody who asked me about their location in like Kamloops, I think in British Columbia. British Columbia. Yeah. British Columbia. Mm -hmm. So she asked me about it and their, her UV index today is like eight. So if you're in that six to 14 range, you're going to make a lot of vitamin D. But remember, that's going to give you a big peak of vitamin D in the late summer and early fall. Vitamin D levels technically peak in October in the Northern Hemisphere at high latitudes in the, in the, in the high 20s, 30s, and 40s. Then they drop and they reach their lowest point in about January, February, March, which coincides with maximum death from cold and flu season. That's not a coincidence. Then they start to come back up again around April, May. There may be a survivor effect here. The people with the low circulating vitamin D levels die. The people who've got enough to get them through the winter have a higher level in April, even though they may not be making much from the sun. And then they start to accumulate it in April, May, June, July, August, when they're getting their sun. So bear in mind, if you have a good vitamin D level in July, that doesn't mean you have a good vitamin D level in January when you're actually more likely to die of some kind of you know, acute illness. So don't make the mistake of thinking that that July uh, number makes you, you know, ensures you through the rest of the year. This is why I like to check lab work quarterly with people. It's one of the reasons why um, I think it was Paracelsus. He said something like, if you really want to help your patients, the first thing you have to do is understand where they live. And I think it was Hippocrates who said something like the first thing you have to do when you're taking a case is you have to look at the seasons of the year and think about those seasons. So that's why I do quarterly lab work and I get a vitamin D level four times a year in patients until we really know where they are. Because this is the, the, the problem clinically is that I can just give everyone four to 5,000 IU of vitamin D and call it a day. I could just give everyone 10,000 IU of vitamin D and call it a day. I don't do that. With four to 5,000, you're going to get most people in a nice range. With uh, less than that, a lot of them are going to be underdosed, especially in our modern indoor world. However, you're going to have a subset of people who don't absorb vitamin D well. 
they have a problem with their gallbladder, they have a problem with fat soluble vitamin absorption, they have an abnormally high requirement for it. Because this is the other thing that people will not realize that's happening clinically. Your vitamin D storage level that's being measured by 99% of people running this test is not the same as your active level of vitamin D, the vitamin D that's actually currently actively running around in your body doing the work. So we're measuring the storage. What we're actually concerned about is the active. You'll see people who have cancers, autoimmune conditions, other immunological disorders, what I call hyper-converting that storage D into active D, and you can't give those people enough storage vitamin D. They just soak it up and they convert it right into active. And the body's doing that for a reason. I haven't seen anyone get clinically worse from that, although I have seen vitamin D overdose, overt vitamin D overdose. It's always somebody who is not being properly monitored and their doctor didn't clarify the, re the recommendations and the prescription to them, or they read the prescription wrong. Uh, I try to make this as simple as possible for patients. I've never had anybody overdose on it because of that. So my bias is for UVB light because of all the other benefits you'll see in sunlight. Uh, but also because UVB light, I don't have any question of absorption. And what I use for that is the Spurdy vitamin D lamp right behind me. Five minutes a day generally gets people up into the optimal range. That's it. That's all you need. Some people will say things like, well, what if you overdose on vitamin D? What if pushing serum levels up is not good? Look, we've been using UVB light for over 100 years now to treat disease. It was given in 1904 in the Nobel Prize. We've used it a ton in resistant eczema and psoriasis and other skin disorders. And what you're going to find is that there's a no documentation of an increased risk of skin cancer in these people because vitamin D is strongly protective of the skin. And B, you're going to see that um, I think we're going to see that UVB exposure in, in general uh, gives us a longevity benefit. I can't back that up with a specific study uh, because there's just too many confounding variables, but I think that's what we'll see when uh, when push comes to shove. So that's my strategy. I'm either using the Spurdy vitamin D lamp for five minutes a day, or I'm using four to 5,000 IU of vitamin D. And if you're doing that consistently enough throughout the year, you know, for example, taking 4,000 or 5,000 IU on a day, you're not going to get the Spurdy or you're not going to get strong UV light outside. Your vitamin D level is going to hover or, or fluctuate anywhere from 45 up to 60 or 70. Now, the reason that I'm not comfortable leaving people in the high 20s or low 30s is the variation that you're going to see throughout the year. Somebody who's got a level that's 50 in December, it could be 20 or 19 three or four months later in March. So I'm not comfortable leaving them there. And I've seen so many people in my practice who have been told, well, you didn't need vitamin D, you don't need vitamin D, you know, you just get it from the sun, just go outside, just get more, you know, UVB light you know, they'll start a vitamin D supplement and all of a sudden they'll stop having recurrent um, colds and flus. Their allergy symptoms will get better. Uh, they'll stop having so many flares of their autoimmune problem. So I really don't think it's fair to say that vitamin D supplements um, are not of value. They're incredibly valuable, but it has to be based on the case. And a lot of the relief is from symptoms and lost, you know, days at work. I do want to mention that I think there's an, an important component here of allowing the body to do what it's naturally trying to do. Remember, we, from, we know from a lot of literature, the book on this that I like, it's got a great chapter and it is called Neil Z. Miller's um, Critical 
studies. Great book. It's got a whole chapter on how fevers and childhood illnesses, routine childhood illnesses, uh, can actually improve your immunity and protect you from chronic diseases later in life, which is something that they really don't want you to know about. Uh, quite frankly, they want you to just knock all those fevers down with Advil and ibuprofen and Tylenol. They want you to take your your kids and yourself to the doctor for every little cold and flu and get antibiotics and get this and get that. I mean, the body has a, you know, what, what I would say is an infinite innate intelligence and you have to be respectful of that. Where I start to intervene is when I see patients decompensating and headed heading towards needing a lot of medical care, needing a hospitalization, needing IV fluids, needing things that are going to um, A, be more expensive and B, give them a non-zero chance of winding up actually admitted to a hospital in an ICU, which is the last thing that they want. And in this day and age, the last thing that they can afford for many reasons. I think one of the things that's really overlooked in this when you go vitamin D ver a supplement versus from the sun is the role of having a healthy circadian rhythm on cancer and on right. um, uh, autoimmune disease. And I think as time goes on, you're going to see it's not only the vitamin D, but it's the fact that you have a healthy circadian clock and how that affects your mitochondrial function and all that sort of, of, of stuff. And people don't don't think about and talk about natural circadian rhythms and how important they are for your overall health of your digestion, your immune system, your entire system, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I agree. I'm getting a link for one of the books I referenced. Okay. So we've got, if a plurality of doctors really believe this, I think you would see nursing home doctors requiring residents to go outside and eat vitamin D foods and supplementing. I wish what you believe was true. Well, if you go back 50, 60 years, that was standard practice. Um, you know, at, at, at older, you know, people that were taking care of older people or people that were sick were automatically told to go outside. Um, you also look at people that live a long time. You know, if you study supercentenarians, most of them have habits like gardening. Most of them spend mm -hmm. a lot of time outside. Um, yes. So, so I, I can't think of any specific study other than the one study that shows that, you know, sun avoidance is basically the equivalent of cigarette smoking. But, um, you know, a lot of these common sense remedies have just been substituted with medications, you know. And a lot of the, the foods have been really, really just their quality has been destroyed. You know, you look at what's happened to the American dairy cow in the last hundred years. You know, if you look at a heritage breed of cow, it's a completely different animal. Yeah. And I'm sure the milk is different from the cows that we have today. You have to remember there's, you know, you're not buying your milk by the vitamin D content. You're buying your milk based on the amount of, you know, fluid you're buying it per gallon. So the incentive we've, we've placed for the industry is for them to make as much milk from their cows as possible. And that basically means watering it down as much as possible. So, uh, the fish are less apt to be, you know, messed with. I mean, I just am like amazed at how they're trying to put fish in cages and farm them. I think that's a terrible idea. I think the real solution is to improve the health of the oceans. I think the other solution is going to be shellfish farming. Shellfish farming is unbelievably efficient. You can feed whole countries with areas of aquaculture the size of a small state like Rhode Island. And that really blew my mind when I started to look at it, but it would also improve the population's health because you'd be getting more iodine from the sea vegetables that you can grow with aquaculture, kelp, 
uh, seaweed, uh, things like Irish moss or sea moss. And then you have the shellfish, which are not only rich in protein and omega-3 fatty acids, but as we've been mentioning today, vitamin D. But, you know, instead we're supposed to be happy eating cricket flour and living in 15-minute cities. So uh, James asks about control. Yeah. Is there an increased risk of skin cancer from sun exposure? What time is safest to get sun? So James, the most important thing for people to know about the sun is that it reduces your risk of death and disability. And what that means is basically if you wind up, you know, getting a skin cancer, there's a, a lot of other factors that contribute to this and B, you may have just lived long enough to get that skin cancer. What I tell patients is if you want to be a pretty corpse, make sure to wear a lot of sunscreen and not get a lot of sun. You're going to have perfect skin on your deathbed and you can have an open casket. You may be obese. You may look like absolute garbage from, for, uh, from other, for other reasons. Uh, but believe me, getting sun, it's very well known. It reduces your risk of death. I think that's much more important than worrying about skin cancer. In addition to that, at least 25% of melanomas are not due to sun exposure because they occur either in non-sun exposed skin, like around the buttocks or the groin, or they're in people who have a very dark skin tone and who are not going to get any sun damage from ultraviolet light. The real problem with ultraviolet light is the skin damage that it does, which is really most, it's most related to sunburn. The other thing that you'll find that's anecdotal that the dermatologists either don't know how to study or haven't bothered to study is how other things contribute to this. So I recently met a woman who reported to me that when she stopped eating dairy and wheat, and stopped using chemical-based sunscreens, skin cancers that she had started having in her early 20s stopped appearing. And so when you go to the dermatologist and they just have an incentive to just cut out more skin and cut out more skin and cut out more skin, all they know is to tell you to put on more sunscreen because it's all they were taught in residency and they only have five minutes to actually talk to you and they don't have any time to actually read the really interesting literature behind all the health effects of sun exposure. So my idea of prudent sun exposure, as I said, is not burning, never burning. I use zinc, zinc oxide sunscreen. I'll cover up with a hat or a rash guard if I'm going to have an ex extended period of exposure. And then I just enjoy the sun. And if I want, I'm going to the dermatologist this, this month, actually, for the first time, I tell all my patients now get skin checked starting at age 35, get ahead of it, get on it early, make sure it's the easiest, it's the easiest cancer to detect. And because of that, People are afraid of skin cancer, but the irony of that is that only 12,000 Americans in round numbers die of skin cancer every year. Three million Americans, plus or minus a few hundred thousand year to year, die overall. The top 10 causes of death, all linked to vitamin D deficiency, all linked to an indoor lifestyle, all increase in prevalence and severity as you increase your latitude, meaning you go from the equator north and you get less and less and less and less UV light which is why, as I like to say, if the sun causes skin cancer, then spoons make people fat. It's just not fair to the sun at all. And it totally misses the point that it reduces your risk of death. That's why throwing out your, your spoons is not a good weight loss strategy. You know that you can use the fork to do the same thing, practically speaking. And you also want to think about sun exposure like exercise, right? If Absolutely. you're untrained, you don't go out, you know, if you, if you haven't lifted weights in, you know, five years and you try and squat 500 pounds, you're going to get driven into the ground like a nail. Or um, if you uh, haven't run a marathon, if you're, you know, all of a sudden you haven't trained and you go out and run a marathon, it's going to wreck you, right? The same as sun. So that the morning sun prepares your skin for the afternoon. The evening helps you heal as well. 
Right. And, and the key is in the dose, right? So the morning sun and the evening sun build your tolerance up. And then the, the afternoon, you, set, you know, the lighter your skin, the less UV you need, the darker your skin, the more UV you need. And I would ask you to ask this question. Light bulbs have only been around for just over 100 years, correct? So, and especially the LEDs and the fluorescents have only been around for, what, 50, 60 years max? Yeah. Um, right. What do you think is going to cause more issues to your biology? The sun, which we've been, you know, depending on what you believe, how we got here, have we been in contact with and nature has been in contact with for hundreds of thousands, if not whatever million years? Or something that's only been on the scene for 100 years that you're sitting at 11 o'clock in your underwear um, basking in, um, you know, fake lights that our body has no idea how to handle, right? Because they're they're not multi-spectrum. They tend to be blue dominant. So that would be my question to you is asking these questions of like, what do you think your body's going to do better with something that we've evolved with for hundreds of thousands of years or something that's foreign and completely new? You know, that that would be the question I would ask. Yeah, hello, I agree. Hello, Adam. Good, to, good to see you, man. Hope you're doing well. So, um, let's see. Uh, on that note, if you would like to enroll as a patient in the practice, I encourage you to do that. We are, uh, are going to be increasing the price of our annual plans in August. So getting in now is the best thing to do. Annual plans include four quarterly or more a quarterly uh, check-in with a nurse practitioner to go over your labs. You'll have those drawn before the appointment. I review every case before and after your appointment. So you get the benefit of my insight, my advice, and my experience. It's not just the nurse practitioner who's taking your case. You also get 12 group coaching calls with me over the course of the year. That's one every month. Believe me, that's a lot of time for me to help you figure out your problems and get you into the best shape of your life. We're also working on incorporating some strength training with Jim. That's not live yet, but for those of you who sign up now, you're going to be grandfathered into that uh, without having to deal with a, a rate hike that other people will face in the future from that benefit. Uh, you can get strength coaching with Jim uh, immediately if you sign up for our Fundamentals of Wellness course. Jim, do you want to share what uh, that is and what you're offering now with the strength training component? Sure. Before I, before I get into that, uh, M-Ball, I think your, your belief system is right on point. Um, so uh, we believe, or I believe that the same things you do in that regard, yeah. um, it's about the Benjamins basically, um, you know, we, I run into a lot of people in the practice who, especially women, uh, you know, postmenopausal, premenopausal, they really need to add muscle mass, improve their balance, improve the way they move. They really don't. There's so much information on the internet now about training. Uh, and most of it is geared towards one, looking a certain way or two, lifting more weights and lifting heavier weights and being stronger and more explosive doesn't necessarily go hand in hand in, in having movement and good movement options. So this program yeah. is going to be designed, obviously, I've worked with every level of athlete. And that's why we do the Q&A so I can kind of guide and customize and help give you advice to get what you want. But the whole program is going to be giving people the fundamental base level of things so they can look good and feel good. And we can adjust it according to what equipment you have, all those sort of things. And I can kind of guide you along. You know, I have experience of working with people over a 20 year period, which most people don't. So I'm able to kind of simplify things and make it so that you can, you know, one, giving you things to do every day that are simple, that are going to help you feel better, look better, move better. Uh, and then other, the other side of that, getting it so that you're training two or three days a week to get results that are sustainable. 
as opposed to most people that are in the gym five, six, seven days a week. You don't have to go to the gym that often if you're active every day to get the results that you want. So and, that, yeah. that, that, that's going to be in there. It's going to be a weekly Q&A. As we add more people, we'll add more Q&As. You'll be able to get on a call with me. If you're comfortable being on camera, we can look at what technique you're using, what strategy you're using, and I'll give you suggestions on, on strategy. Um, that eventually, there'll be programs and templates that you can try. But yeah, I'll be able to teach you to basically coach yourself, essentially. Yeah, and I just want to be really clear with people. Jim is an incredibly experienced coach. Uh, he knows so much, not only about overall health and wellness, but his expertise in the gym is, is absolutely amazing. He helped me put on about 25 pounds of 